Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to the Guide Dog Users of the Empire State. And I think what I'd like to do is, uh, I'm going to get this closer, I'd first like to have the people on Zoom introduce themselves so we know who's attending. Uh, This is Sue Harden, and I'm representing Freedom Guide Dogs. Hi, this is Annie Chapetta. I'm the president of Guide Dog Users of the Empire State, and I want to welcome everybody. Hello, this is Gretchen Fisher-Orr, and I'm here for Fidelco Guide Dog Foundation. And we have Chelsea White from Seeing Eye, who is present in present in person. Okay, how about people that are actually on attending from Zoom? Anybody else? No, that's it. Yes. So in the audience, you have Dolores, Kathy Farina, Linda Hunt, Megan Parker, Myrna Vada, Rosanna Beaudry, and Yasmin C. Okay, in the room we have Richard Fiorello, Mary Beth Metzger. Kathy Lyons, Ann Murray, Marie Lyons, and there was a gentleman in the back, Mike Corzano. Oh, Forzano, excuse me. Anybody else? Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Ann Chiapetta because she wanted to say some words. Ann? Thanks, Nancy. Uh, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to the ACB of New York and the Guide Dog Users of the Empire State 2021 hybrid convention in Buffalo. Uh, Everybody uh, who is in the room, thank you for coming. And everybody who's um, joined us virtually, thank you. I also want to thank all the techies for uh, getting everything straightened out for us, Um, especially Tyson. Uh, I kind of listened to his troubleshooting and I was very impressed. (laughs) Anyway, um, so I wanted to announce the incoming 2022 officers and directors. So our new president will be Nancy Murray. Um, Our vice president will be Rosanna Beaudry. Our secretary will be Lori Scharf. Our treasurer will be Jim Polsoni. And then we have uh, our directors would be Richard Fiorello, Kathy Lyons, Myrna Vada, and oh, Nancy, I'm uh, I'm forgetting the fourth one. <laughs> oh no, um, senior moment. Um, if I remember, I'll say it. So uh, I want to. I also want to welcome all the outgoing officers um, and directors who who helped um, GDUES. Uh, we're a fairly new um, chapter for the American Council of Blind of New York. We got chartered in 2016, and we've been doing very well. And our members grow every year. So, um, and I'm glad to see so many people are here today. So, I'm going to um, give it back over to Nancy um, and Mary Beth Metzger, and we're going to start the program. Just a quick note: Audrey Shading, I think, is the one that you forgot to mention, Annie. Right? Thank you, Mary Beth. <laughs> Audrey Shading. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Cool. All right. So I, I'm done for now and I'm just going to listen. And uh, um, I may have some extra little goodies at the end if we have time. 
So just cue me up and let me know if uh, Mary Beth, if you want me to go ahead with the um, with the guide dog trivia questions and stuff like that. So, okay. all right. So, so the first thing is the first part of it. We want to get an update from the three schools. Of no, there's only three. One one school guiding eyes uh, didn't have a, anyone to represent them for whatever reason. Who knows? So um, I guess we'll start with seeing eye with Chelsea because she's in person. Not that that matters, but so what what updates are there from seeing eye? Good morning, everybody. I'm Chelsea White. I am the outreach specialist for the seeing eye. So uh, I'm the one that comes and does these kinds of things. So um, what is new at seeing eye right now? Um, so a lot of people are asking, you know, what are we doing with, with COVID and, and how's that all affected what we've been doing? And so, uh, as most of you probably know, back in March of last year, we semi shut down. We didn't totally shut down uh, because when you have dogs on campus, you can't completely shut down. But uh, the class that was in at the time went home with their dogs. And once everybody was home safe, we got all of the dogs that were in for training uh, back off campus. So back with puppy raisers, um, a lot of staff took dogs home with them, um, but we got them out of off of campus and out of the kennels because we didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. Uh, plus that allowed all the kennel staff uh, to go home and, and to, you know, not expose themselves as well. So the only dogs that stayed on campus were the ones in the breeding station, um, and they continued to, uh, you know, be be there and have staff take care of dogs and, and that kind of thing. So um, we brought started bringing dogs back right after the 4th of July of last year, and the first group of dogs that came back were the dogs that would have gone into the April class. And so those dogs and those in that group of instructors came back first and they got those dogs ready for class. And we held our first class at the very end of August of last year and have continued to have classes ever since, uh, with the exception of January of this year. We were a little concerned, you know, what was going to happen with COVID and the holidays and, and that sort of thing. So we opted to uh, wait until February and started back up with classes in February of this year. So um, classes are half of the size that they normally are. Uh, normally a class is mm, 20-ish. Um, we can have as many as 24 students in a class, but typically a class is around 20-ish. So classes right now are 10, 12. Normally, it's four students for every one instructor. Right now, we're doing two students for every one instructor so that we can, uh, especially inside, maintain social distance and that kind of thing. Um, and we will continue to do that for the foreseeable future. We were hoping uh, to you know, bring that number up to maybe three to one. Uh, around this time, but with Delta and, and all that kind of stuff and numbers going up, we decided that we were going to wait and, 
and see what happened with that. So that is what we're doing with COVID. Um, we're doing, continuing to do home trainings for those folks who need them um, and, and have done a few extra to try to you know, catch up from not having classes for what, about five months. So, and that is what we're doing with COVID. Um, another really cool thing that we're doing right now is we are installing good maps in the building. So good maps is like an indoor GPS. Um, we all know that, or quite a, m- most of us know that, you know, GPS outside is great because you have access to the satellites and all that kind of stuff. But once you get inside, you lose that connection with those satellites. And so over the years, there's been, oh, various um, companies who have, you know, kind of tried to do some sort of wayfinding stuff indoors. And, and there's been some success here and there, but there's a new company out there now called Good Maps. And um, they are using LIDAR, which is a light-based um, radar, to map indoor spaces. And then you download an app on your phone. And with that, those maps that have been mapped with that, with that LIDAR, you can then get GPS info inside of a building. So you can get, say, for example, you're in a mall and you're walking down you know, the, the mall area. And as you're passing stores, it'll tell you, you know, what you're passing and, and, um, you know, where certain things are at and that kind of stuff. So we are installing that technology, um, in the seeing eye so that when students come those first couple of days before you get your dog, you can download the app and then you can use, um, good maps to orientate yourself to the building so that you have a good mental map of the building once you get your dog and, you know, are not having to deal with new dog and new space all at the same time. So um, we're super excited about that um, and hope that it will be beneficial to uh, our students coming in. And that's pretty much it. That's what we've been up to lately. So more than happy to answer questions if anybody has any. I've got a good question. I'm not answering questions for Mary Beth. And and I can't take back my microphone either. (laughs) I'm I'm the world of her. I have it. (laughs) Chelsea's got the power. Um, About how much does um, the good maps uh, cost to install, say, in a building the size of the seeing eye? That's a really good question. I don't have an answer to. No problem, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. No, that's okay. um, Lucas Frank um, has been super instrumental in getting the technology and, and getting it installed and that kind of thing. So if, if you have more detailed questions about good maps, because uh, what I told you is about all I know, um, I would talk to Lucas, okay, because um, he's he's been super like he's been the one head heading the whole <clears throat> process. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you so much, absolutely. And I guess I'll let you have your microphone back. This is Annie Chelsea. I just want to say thank you so much, and uh, the Good Maps thing is really interesting. So, yeah, I'm um, I'm super excited. Very cool. Yeah. Thank Anybody you. Anybody else? Um, so Kathy's question was what breed of dogs, uh, I was seeing I currently using, uh, so German shepherds, 
Labrador retrievers, golden retrievers, and then we crossed the lab with the golden. Uh, so Richard asked about home training uh, and, and sort of, you know, who would qualify for home training. Um, so for the most part, home training is still for folks who really need it. Uh, so if you are, you know, the caregiver of somebody, a child, a parent, uh, you know, somebody that you couldn't, you know, be away from for the length of a class, which for a first time handler would be three and a half weeks. And for a second or subsequent dog would be two and a half weeks. Um, or if, you know, you have a health concern uh, that, you know, being in class would, you know, really exacerbate or, you know, if you need to be home for, you know, certain types of treatments or those kinds of things. Um, or if you, you know, have a job that you really just couldn't take the time from, uh, those kinds of things. So um, during COVID, we've done a couple extra home turnovers just like I said, so that we can kind of try to catch up. Um, but for the most part, the, there needs to be kind of a need for it. So so Richard also asked, uh, there was some talk several years ago, six years ago, Richard, is that what you said? Uh, when you were in class, when Richard was in class, um, some talk about making some adaptations to class uh, for folks who were a little older. Um, mm-hmm. And absolutely. Uh, so roots... Uh, roots can be shortened. Um, we, you know, typically we like everybody to come to all three meals, you know, to have that experience with your dog. Um, you know, we're, we're being a little more lenient on that, um, you know, because not, you know, not everybody, you know, eats breakfast and that kind of thing. But so yeah, we we have definitely made some some adaptations. Um, you know, we we really try to uh, have training. You know, be as much what you need as possible, and and so uh, we we definitely have made you know made some adaptations for that for sure. All right, we still have two more speakers, so let's go to the next one, and we'll come back if people have questions later. So next, we have Gretchen Fisher from Fidelco. Gretchen? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm happy to be here this morning. Sorry, I cannot be there in person. Um, I work in admissions and client services, and I, I process. One of the things I do is just process all the applications and answer a lot of questions about it. Um, and then I also, this is part of what I do is in conferences and connecting with people. So for Fidelco during COVID, we are in community only. And so what, so like seeing, I, by the way, the good map sounds awesome. I just have to say, <laughs> um, but okay, back to Fidelco. Um, so like seeing I, and most of the other guide dog schools, we had to shut down. Um, we were lucky I think at that, as I, if I recall correctly, we didn't happen to have any pups in the pup house right then, which did make it a little easier. All dogs went home with 
um, you know, puppy raisers, pup sitters, volunteers, staff members. And that lasted for a couple of months. Um, once Connecticut kind of said, oh, you can move around again, training staff, you know, began doing some outdoor training with their dogs that they had. Any, anybody who had dogs at home, um, they were able to do that. And then, you know, uh, by sort of the end of June, um, early July, everybody started to come back to the building. Um, but uh, they kept, um, unless you were considered essential canine people, kennel staff, breeding staff, training staff, et cetera, um, <clears throat> you were remote. So everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, all allergies this morning. So all office and administrative personnel were remote at home. Um, and then when the numbers, so we obviously weren't placing any dogs either. The numbers, when the numbers got low in the summer in many places, um, Fidelco determined, and it was based on also Connecticut state rules around um, COVID, what the governor was doing. Uh, we were able to go to a few states that and do a couple of away placements. We were also able to place locally. That was not a problem. Obviously, we were wearing masks and taking precautions, social distancing and everything, and really focusing on outside work. But placements, so even when we were doing, you know, local placements were minimal. But by the end of the year, we had been able to place most of the dogs we had um that had come through training that year. You know, we only had a few kind of hang, anything, any dogs sort of moving over into 2021 uh, had actually come into training later. So they were kind of more on track anyway. So we were able to place all dogs that were kind of stuck due to COVID. Um, we did, I think, get two or three away placements done to states that were, you know, low percentage or that allowed Connecticut in and that Connecticut said we could go to, we all remember how there was this sort of patchwork. Um, and then of course, come autumn, that all, by the time we hit the end of the summer, that all ended. So we continued to do a few local placements um, until, until, uh, you know, partway into the fall. And then we essentially stopped doing anything because the numbers concerns about the rising numbers in the winter time. Um, and Connecticut also at that point had determined they did their, you know, if you leave the state of Connecticut for more than 24 hours, uh, you have to quarantine for two weeks when you get back. So that, uh, you know, that means we can't really do any business because it it is unfair to staff to have to do that every time they come back. And also that means we don't have all staff available to, you know, to do business, take care of dogs, you know, all this stuff. So, so we, um, we didn't do any more travel training uh, in community until Connecticut lifted that in about May. So we started doing placements. We started traveling again for follow-ups, interviews and placements in um, the beginning of June. We had started out again. Um, the puppy program, everybody, you know, we had to modify our puppy program. So staff began working with people not in, you know, not in the class, but in the community instead. And uh, we're back on campus. We came back on campus they did for classes but only outdoor classes and that's how we've been continuing all administrative staff are still remote um, and so we are still we haven't changed that so we have been full up and running as far as placements goes and interviews and follow-ups um, away from Fidelco since um, the beginning of June and and we've been able to get plenty of local work done but um, so we're hoping that uh this trend will continue and that way we're not going to take a hit if anything changes drastically this winter. I mean, you know, we're ready if it does, but um, you know, everybody's out there and uh, 
And, you know, using obviously social distancing, masking, all the appropriate precautions, um, vaccinating. So that's sort of where we're at. And, and again, the puppy piece is still um, continuing with shepherds only since we're shepherds only. The concern, of course, is they're in a breed that especially needs a socialization. So last year, that was definitely a concern when we had puppy raisers kind of stuck at home for months with shepherds in various ages. Um you know, puppy shepherds. So that was something we've been watching those dogs for and trying to provide support to the families and to the dogs all along. Any dogs who were, you know, probably didn't get the amount of exposure we would normally give them in different situations and then seeing what we can do with them during placement. And most of the time it's worked out fine. So, you know, um, in some cases, the trainers had to do a little bit of extra work. You can't make up for what a dog didn't get. You know, that's a developmental Mm -hmm. state. So if a dog isn't socialized properly, it's not like you can go back two years later and and fix it. You can improve their ability to process the environment, but there was a window that was lost. But it seems that most of the dogs got, you know, at least the minimum of what they needed to be able to accommodate. So, you know, that's um, been not as dramatic as we feared with the breed that we have. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, but I'm happy to answer any questions. All right. Do we have any questions on the Zoom side? Yes, this is Annie Chapetta. Gretchen, how many dogs do you place um, in a typical year? Yeah, and um, that's a good question. We are a smaller school, so we typically place between 30 and 50 dogs. Um, With COVID going on, it's been closer to the low 30s Mm. because we just haven't, that's it's impacted certainly how much business we've gotten done in the past year and a half due to like travel restrictions. Um, I cannot remember, so I've been at Fidelco in some capacity or other since 2002. I'm also an instructor and I cannot remember the last time we got over 50. That would be a high. Um, mm. So <clears throat> this is, this is Beth. I actually have a question too. Um, is that the thing that you mentioned about socialization, Gretchen, can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, that I thought that was so interesting. Is that, you said it was more with German Shepherds, but is that typical of all breeds like labs and goldens and stuff as well? Do you know, so all breeds, all puppies growing up, um, if they're not socialized and by that socialization doesn't mean you bring your puppy around and, and like stick them in situations and hand them to people. It, it's very carefully done, should be carefully done um, with the puppy's age and, and personality and ability to accommodate any learning stress. Um, so it's definitely not like, I know I see stuff online, like, oh, I socialized my puppy, which meant, you know, I dragged it everywhere, even though it was terrified. So (laughs) we're definitely not doing that, but it's an important part of all guide dog programs because there are developmental windows where they really need to experience a lot of things to build up a sort of, you know, a sense of what's normal, a sense of resilience, a sense of being able to accommodate change in their environment. And because shepherds are herding dogs, that means their job is to protect the flock. They are, you know, their job is to be originally their job was to be a little bit suspicious. Um, And so they're more they're you know, they have a more heightened response to changes in the environment and potential stressors. And so, you know, their job, genetically speaking, is to kind of 
you know, go, oh, which of these sounds or things is not like the other because that might be a threat. So for shepherd puppies, it is important to um, make sure they understand that all of these different things they're seeing is not a threat, like, you know, including the elderly lady with the big floppy hat and the bent over and the carriage and the sounds, right? So for shepherds, that's especially important because you can get a lot of suspicious behavior. So, but it's important. Every guide dog school, I'm sure the other guide dog schools can talk about their own programs, but it is a part of every puppy raising program. It's Annie again. Um, in for training, testing, um, Gretchen, I don't know if you could speak on that. Like what, what's typical? I mean, do you really bring in the lady with the floppy hat? <laughs> yeah, or things like that. Like, <laughs> well, that, well. Thankfully, we see a lot of those. With the puppies, get to see those both in puppy classes and in the real environment, um, as do the dogs in training. But yeah, so our temperament testing is we do a, an a, like an eight week old, a six month old, and then we do an in for training test. Those are um, those tests are certainly different than the um, than the in for training test, and we absolutely do introduce potentially. You know, um, we don't want to obviously terrify any dogs, but we expose them to things like, you know, opening umbrellas and vacuum cleaners running. And so there's, um, you know, it's a very specific um, pattern that every dog goes through. And, you know, a person who looks weird and that sort of stuff, because those are concerns about, you know, in the real world, people don't always move the way you know, an ad, like there are a lot of people yeah. who might move differently, um, including on a rainy day when everybody's got all their, you know, noisy raincoats on. So and fr- and from there, the question is not did the dog, you know, we're, we're probably less concerned, like, oh, did the dog notice them or did the dog kind of go, oh, my gosh, what is that? You know, that might happen and that's OK. But, you know, we're more concerned about the dog who might, you know, be be not able to recover um, be not wanting to participate um, with whatever was, you know, it's one thing to um, be surprised by something and go, oh, I don't know. I'm surprised, but I might have to check it out or I might be I might decide that I can just go about my business. You know, it's a different thing for right. the dog to, to hit the other side of the room and say, I'm not going anywhere near that. And I can't because that's a dog that we have questions about then. It doesn't mean they would necessarily get dropped right then, but we certainly um, understand we immediately have questions we want to answer. And hopefully within the first few months, so we don't use too many resources training a dog that really is not able to do the job. Thank you. I I actually don't have a lot to add to what to Gretchen, what Gretchen said. Um, is that seeing eyes, you know, puppy program is very similar to and and I, you know, to 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 Fidelco's um, in that you know dogs, puppies, you know, at various stages, you know, need to be exposed to things and see things and do things, uh, so that when they come back in for training you know, they've already seen the world. Right. And, and yeah. so it's not a huge surprise to them when they're out, you know, being trained to be a guide dog and, you know, somebody with a walker comes at them, you know, not only do you have the walker, but then you have, you know, somebody who might be, you know, look a little different, you know, a dog's not going to react to that. They're going to go, Oh, I've seen that before. That's not a big deal. So, um, so that that's, you know, that's why guide dog schools have puppy raising <laughs> programs is because if you kept a puppy in a kennel until they were ready for training, it wouldn't work because they wouldn't have seen the world. Linda, I actually, if I may ask, ask, ask two um, questions. Uh, 
along the lines of this, um, we're talking about puppy socialization. Um, I'm between dogs, and I'm be- and uh, between guy dogs, and um, the dog that I and I and I got a dog from Guiding Eyes, and she was beautiful, and she worked really well at Guiding Eyes, and we lasted three months. What seems what appears to have, and she didn't do well in the house. She thought she lived in Toy Story. So we were, we, you're, and so she was shaking everything. And those, those canines can go through any number of things that nice big canine. Yeah. <laughs> like my, my husband's new um, L.L. Bean uh, slippers, you know, that he'd gotten. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, but here's my serious, and, and I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining about any school guiding eyes. And it's not the first dog I've had to give up. And I don't know what my, my hidden file says, but they always say, gee, this wasn't your fault. This one, <laughs> this one would appear to be sort of COVID related. She'd been out of a house for a while, but her big issue, and my daughter had insight into this, was that she connected with her kennel mate. She bonded very much with her kennel mate. They bonded with each other. Kennel mate did fine when she went out. My dog is back living with another dog. In fact, her daddy, she doesn't, you know, they don't know that, but have you, you know, what, and, and I know that dogs, you know, they're, they're kind of pack animals. And, but we've been talking a lot about seeing the world, and that's uh, certainly important for a guide dog. But has anybody ever thought of, has anybody ever kind of focused on this um, experience of how you help a dog, particularly the COVID dogs, who've been in, in kennel for a long time, um, make, yeah. go to a house where there isn't another dog. Right. So Linda, I can, I, you know, I can certainly speak to that for Fidelco. Um, one thing is Fidelco, because we are small, we have a few dogs always coming in always. Right. And we also, the dogs, our dogs didn't, we have shepherds and shepherds historically don't kennel really well. So we can't leave shepherds in the kennel for a long time. Okay. Just because, Yeah. So we can't do that. You know, our training is six months for some dogs. It takes a little longer. We don't really want them in the kennel longer than that because they, they start to deteriorate. They're just not good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the other thing is we don't have dogs come in and um, like sort of batches where they stay together always. Um, it, you know, first well, of all, that's, I don't know that that's yeah, the case, right. But so that yeah. she bonded with her right. mate, whoever she was with, whoever was, she was yes. with at the time. Absolutely. So we have be, also, because we have shepherds, they don't always kennel well together. Um, so we have, <laughs> we have some dogs that, um, live, alone and we have some dogs that live with roommates and if they live with a roommate it's might possible it might only be two months and then they get another roommate or then they're alone for a little while so so i i think our our kennel situation um due to our size and our breed choice is probably somewhat dynamic i don't think dogs and i was an instructor for over 15 years and i don't recall dogs i mean i do remember if a dog left and then that their dog remaining might miss their roommate but i don't remember that it was generally anything that was going to affect life in the the real world because then 
they would get another dog or then, you know, they would, it, it was just, it's fairly dynamic, I think. So, and also maybe, and just as somebody who is a trainer, you know, obviously guiding eyes knows their dogs, but in general, you know, there is a personality thing there. with every dogs, with all dogs, they have their own unique personalities. Yes. Sure. So, I, yeah. I just didn't happen to have another dog. Um, and I, and now let me just ask you one more question, um, Gretchen, I'm focusing on you because I've been a lab person since I was 19, and I'm an old lady now. <laughs> and, um, and, and um, you know, what, what we always hear is, oh, if you, and I also <laughs> told my children, do not whine if you want to, you know, survive in life. <laughs> with oh, <this> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> is it true? And then I will lower my, is it true that, that, what, um, that if you've not had a, a long, lived experiences with lab is le- with the shepherds and you're an older person and you don't like whining, forget it. Don't even go there. Well, so I would say less my, my, as an instructor, my concern would be less about whining because, you know, I can say we have very few whiners. We don't have a lot of, we have some who might squeak a little bit. Um, If we get a whiner, we certainly don't place it with somebody who, we try not to anyway, to place it with someone who um, can't accommodate that, right? But, you know, they can be a little more vocal. Um, I would say my bigger question as far as if somebody older is wanting to think about switching from labs to shepherds is to not focus on the whining because that would be something that if you wanted a shepherd, you would say to the school, this is something I really struggle with, you know, or I would struggle with. Um, what are the odds of my finding one without whining? I, I, you know, I don't think that's a like can, persistent whining is something that is certainly potential, but I I don't think we see it all the time. You know, it just happens occasionally. Um, I think the bigger question is that shepherds um, ask a lot of questions. They need a high, they need a high degree of responsibility. They do best in environments where they're going to get not just worked every day, but worked probably over the course of any given week in a variety of situations. Um, They do best with a handler, who's willing to provide structure. They are the, especially the first year that you really have to stay on top of them. They are the dog who might wonder if I, you know, who, who might wonder and notice, like, I don't know if I'm just looking at this thing over here or fixating on the squirrel or whatever. And I bump you into an obstacle. Are you really going to make me rework it? Are you really going to correct me and say, no, don't do that and make me rework it? Because if you're not, then so they 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 test the envelope. They're the dog that if you ask them 11 times to if you ask them to get to lay down 11 times, we would hope as instructors, it would never take that many times. But the point is, (laughs) if you ask them to lay down 11 times and 11 times they pop back up again, you can't give up. You have to ask them to lay back down again. You cannot ever let them get away with stuff. And they tend to be um, more intense personality wise. I think anybody in the room out there um, who has shepherds or has had them, maybe has had both breeds can probably um, talk to that you know, difference. Um, you know, people say what makes the better dog. I, I don't, it's a different personality. They are tend to be a bit of a handful and you really need to make sure you're keeping them busy and staying on top of them. They're the dog who is, if they don't get enough to do um, they or enough structure, they, instead of deciding they're going to be a pet, which they might decide they're going to 
um, more likely to decide to invent their own things to do. So that could become unsafe in harness or become totally a nuisance in the house. You know, they're more likely to develop nuisance barking. They're more likely to develop um, <clears throat> pushy behaviors in the house. They're more likely to, you know, decide they're going to today chase the cat because they weren't being kept busy enough. Those are more some of the issues we see in the field when a shepherd isn't being worked enough. I hope that answers your question. This is Annie. I, I'm like totally fascinated by what you said because um, I have a shepherd mix and you just described her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see Linda right here. I don't know if I we lost her. Um, oh, there she is. OK. Oh, there she is. Good, good. Um, yeah. So. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who can speak to that, who actually have real life experience. My, I just have the training and instruction and the vet. Lots of great insight. Thank you so much. Rich was um, asking, he said that about 10 years ago, he was looking at uh, the Fidelco website, Gretchen, huh? and it, that um, somewhere on the website, um, at least back then, it indicated that eligibility was determined by a group of attorneys. Is that still the case? No, it's uh, actually it's actually a group of staff members who sit down and review everybody. And and uh, it's the same people every time. And so it is we used to have volunteers who were I think we had an attorney. We had a couple of doctors from the community. Um, we had people from the board of Fidelco who who would, you know, do the final review of an application. But it is currently all in house now. Two questions, actually, Gretchen, about okay. how large are your shepherds? Rich commented that many of the uh, Fidelco dogs that he's seen have been large shepherds. And then he said, do you um, use any sort of special like subbreed of shepherd? Um, so he's looking for size determination and also so just some quick information about breeding. Sure. So we used to say, oh, Fidelco is a breed within a breed, right? That's uh, for years. That's what it was. But really what, what Fidelco does is no different than what any other guide dog school does, which is take the breed they, the breed they work with or breeds and just really work on temperament that really is going to suit the needs of that school. So they used to say, oh, it's a breed within a breed, but really it's a shepherd, but we're really breeding just like every other school for the temperament we really want. Um, as far as size goes, we tend to just try to shoot for the mid-range of the actual shepherd standard. So, you know, we don't want dogs that are really little. We don't want dogs that are really big. And some of that is just keeping, maintaining the genetic health of the breed. Uh, and so I would say typically our females are... 65 pounds-ish. Some of them make it as big as 70 pounds. Males tend to be between 75 and 85 pounds. And they, so they are, they're not large. We do get, you know, absolutely. We get some totally large boys. I have trained some dogs that were like, felt like I was working a giraffe. And I have trained some really big muscular boys. But um, in general, we're not trying to do that. We're really trying to stick within the confines of the breed because, you know, the breed's been around a while and we want to maintain the health of the breed. And it's enough work to get the temperament and physical health. So we don't, fo we just want to keep everybody healthy. And we see that seems to be successful by staying kind of within the 
average confines of the breed. Uh, Rich asked um, that he, he mentioned that he thought that at one point Fidelco mandated a, a specific food that they wanted the dogs to eat. Do you still do that? And if so, what food is it? We do not. Once upon a time, that was Abity Foods, and they they had both raw and granulated and kibble options. That was going on when I first was hired, actually, and was for a few years after that. We we currently feed. Um, I think right now it's um, depending on the dog, Blue Balance. Uh, sorry, Blue Buffalo, um, and I think some dogs are on natural balance, different proteins, of course, for the different dogs. And we really um, have tried to find foods that work well for the dogs in the kennel. And then also our, our, um, it, it, where it's not hard to find them out in the world. You know, you, pet foods that you can find in your, you know, high quality dog food, but things that you can find in PetSmart, in Agway, and online is what we really right. try to with non-obscure foods. Okay, Rosanna? Hi, this is Rosanna Baudry. Um, I have my third guide dog. She is a yellow Labrador retriever. And um, I have an interesting question I noticed with this dog and socialization. And I'm kind of curious. Um, my second dog that I had, she just, when I got her, she came home and she just was happy as a clam, found her toy box and you know, was a normal dog. Um, this dog, again, with personality, she was very reluctant. And it took a good year for us to really bond. And now, I mean, now she's fine, but it took mm-hmm. a long time. And I'm really wondering, socially, these dogs are with a puppy raiser for the first year of their life. And I honestly, I think my dog just wanted to go back to her puppy raiser and what, like, how do they socially transfer from the puppy raiser to the kennel, to the mm-hmm. handler, and then the end of life where they might go back to the puppy raiser or to another home. That's got to be really hard on a dog. So, I mean, it's hard on yeah. a human. I think it's a good question, Rosanna. Um, in in acknowledgement of that, that we ask, you know, we ask a lot of these dogs. You all who have guide dogs know that that we ask a lot of them, and they and they most of the time are able to give us what we're asking. So some of the things we do is, um, and again, like you pointed out, there are personality differences. My my family went not. I mean, when I was an adult and out of the house, my parents raised a puppy who was very aloof, and he, my dad loved that puppy and he was just always the dog kind of in the corner doing his own thing relaxing um so you know there are personality pieces to it um so when the at, at Fidelco when the puppies are are still in with their puppy raisers we switch they'll they'll do puppy swaps where they'll go to different homes for a weekend they'll trade puppies so we start to introduce the idea like oh you know here are different people here's a different situation he, um that it's that you know do we we try to do it in small doses um as soon as they're six months old they can come into the kennel and we start doing kennel stays we certainly any dog who comes female who comes into heat is going to be in the kennel but we try to get them in for the first stay like for a long weekend or something like that just to give them a small dose of the kennel and the kennel staff and then um and then also the boys have to come in at second time when if if the family doesn't board them because they're on vacation or something like that, they have to come in a second time because they otherwise they would miss out on the extra time that the females are getting in the kennel. And then um, when they come in, right, we um, 
they uh, and, and all this is always in in our minds is the helping the animal transition to different environments and different people. So then they transition to the trainer. And then at the end of the um, training, we actually usually hand them to another trainer so that they can, again, have an experience where they can be with another person, be worked by another person, feel the difference, and also start to bond with another person a little bit. And then ultimately, we place them in the field. So uh, we do ask a lot of these dogs, all of us do mm-hmm. in the guide dog industry, guide dog makers, guide dog users. Um, but, um, you know, I, I know here we pay attention to that and really try to teach them, give them experiences to build resilience. Um, and that it's okay. And I, I can tell you that as somebody who has placed dogs, that by usually by the end of the, the, the end of the placement, you know, the dog was no longer interested in me because, because honestly, when it was with me or somebody at Fidelco was living in a kennel and it was going out to train every day, but now it's got a person and it's got a home. And uh, yeah, so then I become chopped liver. Um, so I think it's an important question, Roseanne, because it is true. We ask a lot of them. All right. I think we need to go to Susan Harden. We don't want her to be felt like she's been left out. No. (laughs) She can address us and she can fill in with, you know, first their update of of what uh, Freedom is doing and then even get into this last part of, you know, the dogs transitioning or the amount of time they spend in the kennel or don't spend in the kennel or, you know, all that stuff that we just covered in the last, I don't know, whatever, minutes. All right, Susan. All of the Freedom trainers are out doing home placements this weekend. So Eric asked me if I would do this, and I said, yeah, I guess so. So here I am. And I want to say hi to all my old New York friends. I still think of myself as a New Yorker, even though I've been in Florida for 30 years. Okay, very soon Freedom will be adding an apprentice to the trading staff, which will be very good. Um, they're also going to use Bouviers for those with allergies. They've been using the Barbets, which have worked out, but they're trying now the Bouviers. The school has always been in Cassville, New York, uh, but we now have a satellite school. Like, can't figure out what to call it, so satellite, I guess, is good, in Florida. So there'll be a full-time trainer There's a large puppy raising program in Florida. There are already over 50 graduates in Florida. So Florida's become a a hotspot for the school. And a lot of people end up in Florida, as you probably know. Uh, During COVID, the school shut down for a month, only a month, totally, when it was raging through New York State. And after that, choosing areas of the country where it wasn't quite so bad um, and, you know, the mask mandates, the social distancing, all the careful things, started placing dogs. Of course, it's all home training. The entire program is home training, like Fidelco. So we were able to do that, and they were able to place 35 dogs during last year, even with covid so that was, that was good. Also, this year will be the 30th anniversary, well, actually next year, will be the 30th anniversary of freedom. Doesn't seem possible. Uh, when I left Guiding Eyes, uh, Eric and Sharon were still working there. 
And then all of a sudden they left, and I guess they went to Fidelco for a little bit and then started Freedom. That'll be 30 years in July. So that's about what's going on. It's an exciting time. And like all the schools, we made it through COVID, but it wasn't necessarily easy to do. Any I'm questions? Can you talk about the breeds that Freedom uses? Okay, sure. They use, of course, the Labradors. Um, they use smooth-coated collies, and they uh, use collie lab, I mean, uh, yeah, collie lab crosses. Look at Mary Beth's if you want to see one. That's that's a, what do they call them? Lolly. 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 Yeah. And they use a lot of the lollies, and that's what Mary Beth has. All right. So how how did you handle the dogs in the kennels during COVID? They stayed there, or they, were they... Well, the kennel is right on the grounds of the school, and right. yes, the, the, many of them stayed there. A lot of them, of course, in their in their foster homes, and so it pretty much they the ones that were in the kennel stayed, and the rest stayed in their foster homes, occasionally with a volunteer. So, Sue, so it sounds like statistically, if am I right that freedom really didn't suffer? a whole lot as far as COVID. I'm sure it suffered some, but it doesn't sound like it suffered as much. Am I, am I no, right? it really didn't. It really didn't. Um, as I say, we were able to pick areas. All right, there was a time when you would stay out of Florida because Florida was horrible. Uh, and so we trained, let's say, in another state, Pennsylvania, whatever. Wherever it wasn't quite so bad, they were picking areas like that. And Again, being with home training, you don't have to go in a mall or have to go inside so much. So, no, I don't think we really did suffer that greatly. Managed to keep um, pretty much on target. Yeah. Hey, Sue, this is Annie Chapetta. It's great to hear your voice. You too. Yeah. How many dogs does Freedom Place per year, would you say? Uh, About 40. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Probably be more once we get another trainer, I would assume anyway. Oh. How many good. trainers does how many trainers does Freedom have? Uh three full time trainers and now we're adding an apprentice. But the apprentice won't be a trainer yet. Well, no, not yet, of course, yeah. but Kathy Kathy was just commenting that she applied that um Freedom responded quickly to her application. You know, they were able to find a very good match um, for for her, um, and that she applied in in January and was placed in April, and was very satisfied with her her dog. And it handles all the various medical issues that she has. Well, that's yes, yes. Well, okay. we try um, Myrna. So Sue. Um, with freedom, how, how long is a waiting period? So let's say that my dog now is a little more than seven. I'm city, I'm New York, um, you know, which is not as the easiest place to, for dogs. Um, if you thinking, well, I think I might want to get another dog, um, after she retires. And I think I'll probably retire between nine and a half and 10. I don't, I want her to be a dog so that she can run and you can't run in a New York city apartment or a Brooklyn apartment. So when would you need to apply if you were thinking about doing that? Well, to be on the safe side, I would say give it a year 
usually at this point, although we're getting, you know, a lot of applications, um, probably a year ahead. Again, it was, as in any school, it wouldn't hurt to apply, you know, a little bit more because it can always put you back. At least you're ready to go. Usually within a year. Now, some instances, where the, of course, where the right dog is for the right person, it might take less time. But I would say to be on the safe side, give it a year. Okay. All right. Let's let's ha- let's pose that same question to the other two schools as well. So, Fidelco, how long would the waiting period be for someone who's applying for a dog? I guess um, you'd say the first time and maybe uh, a retrain. Okay. Yeah. Retrain so. So it takes, it's typically we tell people six to 12 months. It can be longer, especially if that person um, has some very specific needs. And sometimes uh, the same way uh, Sue said, which is sometimes we get lucky and a dog is there fairly quickly. Mm. Um, so it's really like, you know, obviously all about individual matching, but at least six to 12, six to 12 months generally. And that that's either for a first time or somebody that's coming back for another a second. So if somebody's coming back for another, we do work extra hard, right? Because we don't want people to be in between dogs. We don't want to have a big gap there. But again, we don't want to give them the wrong dog. So while we work hard to meet the needs of people who have had our dogs to success our dogs, um, again, if, if that dog isn't there, we're not going to give them a dog that's not right because um, then it's just we're going to have to bring it back and start again anyway. Okay, Chelsea, how would you answer this question? You know, for the first time, how long does somebody have to wait? And then if they're coming back for, say, a second or third or whatever dog, how long would that person have to wait? Sure. So priority is given to uh, retrains. So if if there's a dog who is a good match for a new person and also that dog is a good match for a retrain, we're going to bring the retrain in first because um, like Gretchen said, we want as you know little time between dogs or folks as possible. Um, and as far as how long is somebody going to wait, um, I have two separate answers to that because they're different now with COVID. So before COVID... Wow. Uh, folks on average would wait about three months. Um, right now, our wait is probably closer to six to nine months um, just because we're having to play catch up. So, and we are, you know, trying to get to those people who have been waiting longest. So, but like as Gretchen said, um, uh, oh, and I just totally lost the name of the, the lady from Freedom. Um, so sorry, I'm terrible. With no problem. Sorry. Um, so, but as, as they both said, you know, it, it very much depends on the right dog for the right person. You know, we're, we're not going to give the wrong dog to a person because it's not going to work. So, um, you know, you, you may wait a little bit longer because we are waiting for the right dog for you or, you know, I, between who oh, a dog number, I'm a guide dog user myself. Uh, so between dog number two and three, uh, it just happened that I retired my, my second dog and went into class a week later because they, they had the right match for me. Wow. So it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I got really lucky. <laughs> All right. 
Now, I think we should go on to the next part. So, Annie, you had some questions related to um, the older population. Would you like to start with the first one? Sure. Um, So, we, uh, well, many of us uh, in Guido Users of the Empire State are um, what we call active adults um, between the ages of 55 on up and um, a lot of us are, uh, you know, repeat guide dog handlers have had dogs for many, many years. Um, and, you know, I've, I've gotten to know, um, the people on the board and, you know, just in general. Um, and, uh, since I'm also starting to get older and dog number two <laughs> is getting older as well. And I've got to think about, retiring my dog probably maybe the next year or so. Um, My changes as uh, a handler have changed as well. I'm older. I'm probably a little slower. I probably, um, my needs have changed also in my vision. You know, I was a late life vision loss person. So when I received my first dog, um, I had a little bit of residual vision. And when I had my second dog, um, I, I, I lost all that. So it was, it was like, uh, it was very different for me. Uh, and, you know, moving along, you know, we figure we get dogs every 10 years or so, um, a lot of changes and, uh, we're, we're, you know, just all of these things I think have come into uh, flux for, for us, you know, and just being people we're living longer. Um, our needs become more complex as we get older uh, so I guess I would like the people here today representing the different schools to talk a little bit about the, you know, the needs of older adults, if, they're, um, uh, if there's any customized training that they consider, um, whether it's harder to, uh, to place dogs with, with people who are getting older because they're, they're, you know, their needs change, such as um, slowing down or needing um, a stronger, larger dog because maybe they have some physical um, uh, or or, um, other types of uh, balance issues that come up, things like that. Um, I just want to throw out the question, you know, know, when needs change, you know, how do the schools um, and the programs and the trainers compensate? Um, And just your general thoughts on, on that, you know, going into the future as well as the present. All right, let's start with, uh, we're going to work backwards from the list. So let's start with Sue first. Well, I'm a perfect candidate for this one. I'm 81 years old. (laughs) (laughs) And you're talking about balance issues. Um, I'm fine with the dog. I I don't feel much different than I did a long time ago, but I use um, an orthopedic cane, not a four-prong because I found that that thing I trip over with the dog and the dog seemed to just accept it and I think what um, again it would be a a more of a matching issue than anything else that right now I can tell you I'm living in a retirement community as an independent resident come and go do everything but I would never be able to have a shepherd I think you'd be climbing the walls because there's times when you don't do as much when you're 81 as you did when you were 61 or 41. So I think it's a matter of there are um, 
I know with freedom, there are dogs that are bred that are like Opus. Um, he loves to work, but if he casts to sleep a day, oh, well, good, you know, wake me up when you're ready. Uh, so it's basically a matching thing. And again, with home training, but also seeing I said they were doing the same thing is all, you know, making it just a little bit different. Maybe we could walk, you know, a mile instead of two, uh, do the things that we need rather than just the general that everybody else needs. And I think all probably all the schools are doing that. I know certainly it works with freedom. I guess seeing eyes doing the same thing in class, I think that's great. Thanks, Sue. Okay, Gretchen? So because we've always been in community, we've always been able to customize the training, the two-week training to, you know, what somebody really needed. Um, so we don't have any sort of upper age limit, right? Instead, everybody is assessed individually every time they need another dog. Um, some concerns, because we only have shepherds, concerns about shepherds are um, they tend to be a little bit quicker. We're less likely to have slow dogs. Um, they can be really powerful dogs. So, um, you know, if somebody has a balance issue and doesn't have any way to mitigate that, then we, you know, one of the questions is, could, could they get pulled down? What is their risk of actually getting pulled down? Because the dog gets excited about something. Um, and how, you know, how well someone is able to manage that dog in the house. Um, so, you know, and again, it, it is very individually addressed. So somebody who lives in New York City, who is getting out every day, even if it's not as far as it used to be because they have to is probably going to be more successful than somebody who only gets out a couple of days a week or maybe has um, goes few places compared to what they used to go. So, you know, those are some of the concerns because again, back to what happens with a shepherd when they don't get what they need, um, they actually become a greater safety risk. So that's definitely a concern. Um, you know, I will say that, um, Oh, and I just lost my train of thought. How did that happen? Totally. <laughs> wow. Um, so, you know, so, yeah, so it's really, it's very individual. Um, I For people, for people who are older, who are accepted, um, and we've got people who have had dogs at Fidelco since the 80s when we first started, instead of being breeding guide dogs, just placing them or training, placing them ourselves. Um, at that point, if somebody does get accepted and they're an older person, um, they may need a dog that is harder for us to find because they need, may need a sort of a, I don't know, a reduced energy shepherd or a slower shepherd or a shepherd that doesn't need as much to do. Those are not the bulk of what we're making because the breed itself, it's not what, you know, it's just the breed. So we, you know, if somebody who is older and is accepted, you know, it often comes with a caveat that it may take us a while to find your dog. Yes, we accepted you into the program, but we, it just may take some time um, and to please be patient. And, you know, we hope we can find it. So, so it's usually that sort of thing will happen. Um, if we can assess that the person would not be a safety hazard, if the shepherd wouldn't be a safety hazard to the person, then it's a question of asking them to be patient because the dog may not show up right away. All right. Chelsea, how would you answer this question? Um, so I, I, I addressed it a little bit earlier because Richard had asked, um, but I, I will just sort of ditto Sue's. It's, it's really all about the match of, of the dog to the person. Um, you know, like I said earlier, we, we do accommodate in class as far as, you know, shortening routes and 
um, you know, not making a day quite so full for a person, um, you know, because typically a, a day starts at 530 in the morning and goes till 830 at night, which is a long day for anybody. Um, so, you know, we we adapt that, um, you know, so that we're not totally exhausting, you know, people who are a little older. Um, and, uh, you know, also, you know, that home training is an option for, you know, somebody who, um, I always hate to say older, um, Oh, go ahead. Active adults. What's a better? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's better. I love active adults. That's awesome. Active adults. Because that's what people are. Right. Mm-hmm. I adult. Yes, I like that. Um, so, <laughs> again, you know, it's it's really all about what a person, you know, needs and and what, you know, they're they're going to, you know, need, not only need, you know, in, in class, but then, you know, what they're going to need when they go home. Kathy Lyons is questioning about the the collies and the lollies. Are they more energetic or less so? Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think perhaps they're a little more energetic. What do you say, Mary Beth? You've got one, but again, I, Mary Beth is more energetic than a lot of people too. <laughs> so um, I saw another lolly down well. here. <laughs> yes, um, we have a lolly placed here with uh, Julie Carroll, and she's, well, she's in her late 60s. Now, that dog seems a little calmer than maybe Kiki, but I think probably they're a little more energetic than some of the really laid-back labs, but I wouldn't swear to it. I think I think they are. Um, I mean, that, I just have had one lolly, you guys, one lolly, which is Kiki, who is sleeping right now, um, but I do think that that she's a little more apt to be up during the day seeing if maybe there's somebody she could save you know maybe timmy's in the well or you know something you have one question on zoom when you are ready to yeah, she's gonna be on the ground you know he's having a nap um she's not annoying she will settle down very well She's she's a good worker, but I think and I think that that she does have a little more of that um, alertness when she's off harness. You know, she's she's still like, wait, is Timmy in the well? You know, whereas a lab is all my labs were not quite like that. I mean, it wasn't that they were necessarily sleeping, but they were like, eh, Timmy might be in the well, but. Yeah, Timmy and I, we're not that close. You know, so I guess we'll leave Timmy in the well. <laughs> but that's just one person's experience. All right. Do we Hello. have someone on Zoom that is oh, okay? Um, it's Linda Hunt again. Um <laughs> I'd you know what, be you know, I take about any dog and I'm always saying to Mary Beth, I'm gonna come over and she's always she's always busy and I you know, I kind of think like well, maybe she thinks I'm just going to walk out the door with Kiki. And, you know, she could maybe be right, you know. <laughs> Desperate people. No, Kiki's is... <laughs> what? I said, I'm just saying to hold the leash right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, Kiki's a wonderful dog. <laughs> she really is. My question is to the trainers. Um, a trainer is is, for a lot of us, or, uh, this is my lived experience. Many of us have 
been blind, and that's why we have gotten guide dogs. But as we, that, but there are, are people, um, certainly, you know, with, um, and particularly as we age, you know, people with multiple disabilities. And, um, like, our hearing may not be as keen as it used to be. Our memories um, are, you know, are not as good. I mean, I, I, it's like my, my daughters, I always call one of them by, you know, I call them by the wrong name. So I occasionally can run through the whole roster of guide dogs till I get the right name. Um, you know, I guess, you know, uh, that's really my question. Well, that's one of my questions. Um, that uh, is, is that idea that of, of, of maybe more than one disability memory, um, maybe lack of hearing, not and not as along with the slow down. And then I have a kind of related question. All right, we'll start with Sue first. Well, again, those things I think are, come naturally with it. The, the think of your daughter's names and all that—that's really nothing. Um, well, I, I know that, but you a know. little bit of hearing, a little bit yeah. of hearing loss. Again, I think it's a matter of the schools, and I think they all do a good job of it. Basically, is matching you with a dog that can that can handle the situation. Um, I, I mean, let's face it; the schools have trained totally deaf, blind people, which is absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. And I think that they take that into all of the little things like that, like the balance and like um, other things that when age comes and you're slowing down, all that dealing again, right back to the matching process and. That's where it all begins, and I know freedom deals with any older people. Uh, what was that again? Uh, Active adults. Active, Active adults. Active adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And, uh, and certainly, you know, a few of them, and there's been no real problem. As again, like I have this perfect match for me right now. I mean, you would not want this dog if you had to work in Manhattan and go to work every day. But he would do it, I suppose, but no, he's much happier with this way. And I think that's all. It's all in the matching process. Gretchen? Sure. Um, so, so for someone who's having hearing loss, we don't have um, staff who can actually, we don't have the specialty that some schools have to actually work with someone who is actually deaf. So if someone either comes to us in the first place or develops significant hearing loss over time, our we are fine as long as they can audibly detect traffic crossings. If we get to the place of they're no longer in the land of auditory crossings, um, even if it takes extra time or maybe they change their, you know, routes or whatever, then we might actually suggest they go um, apply to one of the schools that is able to deal with really significant hearing loss. That's just not a specialty we have on board. So that's, you know, certainly a factor. And, you know, I would echo some of what Sue says, you know, um, we don't have some of the breed flexibility that the schools with multiple breeds have. We've only got what we've got. Um, if we determine someone is indeed, you know, a good a good fit, um, an older or excuse me, an active adult. Um, <laughs> if we determine someone is a good fit, even if it's going to take them longer to find the right dog, you know. The, the in-community training means, yes, we can always customize the placement. And, um, and, and it is about the match. It's, you know, really, I think, I think um, the more the, the 
as people change over time, because we all change over time, it or if people experience life changes even when they're younger, it becomes more important e- even than normal about the match because we really have to get it right. So I don't mm. know if that answers all your questions. Chelsea? So we, uh, as far as, as, as um, having <clears throat> or, or being able to accommodate people who are profoundly deafblind, um, that's really not something that we do. Um, Guiding Eyes and Leader Dog both have programs for people who are profoundly deafblind. Um, now, with that said, if somebody has been a graduate, they've had dogs from the seeing eye before, um, we have a, a saying, once a grad, always a grad. So if when you got your first dog, you know, you were 22 and, and going to college and here and there and everywhere and, ah, and, you know, your only disability was a visual impairment. And then as you aged, you know, you add on maybe a little bit of hearing loss or, you know, some balance or those kinds of things. Um, we will absolutely accommodate graduates. Um, we, we have quite a number of grads who, you know, over the course of 30, 40, 50 years, you know, have lost a significant amount. Um, so we will, you know, work with that. Um, we have a couple of graduates. Now we do not accept new applicants who, who are profoundly deafblind, but we'll work with graduates, um, you know, who now because of age or, or whatever, you know, have that. Um, with, we have a couple of graduates who, because of age or accidents are now in wheelchairs. And so they came to us when they were, you know, on two feet and, and then had either age related or accident related things that put them in a wheelchair. Um, and, you know, we've trained dogs for them to work with them in their, in their wheelchair. So it's, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a complicated answer to your question, but, you know, definitely we will, um, you know, try to work with people as, as much as we possibly can. Um, but I have just a thought. I have um, lost hearing um, over the last couple of years, I guess the last four or five years. So I only have one ear that I hear out of, and I have a hearing aid in that one ear. And um, I, the answer to how to work with someone who is both hearing impaired and visually impaired is that when you have a dog, you really have to integrate your training from your trainer, your dog trainer, as well as your O&M instructor who will give you guidelines that you can use in terms of dealing with traffic and crossing. So, and I have found that integrating those two aspects have helped me be a better handler given the disabilities that I have to deal with. Um, so that, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. My other question was, and I think Cheryl, I think it's Cheryl, right? Um, Osu, I partially answered my question. I know of someone who has a dog from seeing eye and um, she is now in a wheelchair due to a medical uh, thing that happened. They're not really sure how or why it happened. She still has her dog, but um, now she is wondering how she can integrate 
using her wheelchair and her dog at the same time. No, I think she went to leader. I'm not really even sure now. Um, but my question is, can they train, can a trainer train someone who is now in a wheelchair who is blind? Can they utilize their dog in that in that way? Because she feels like she's lost her independence. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I can, I can answer that to the extent I'm, I'm not a trainer, so I'm going to put that caveat out there right now, but makes sense. So first of all, uh, to be successful with a, a dog, uh, in a wheelchair, the person needs to use an electric chair. Um, Correct. right. Right. Um, because you can't use a push chair and hold a dog harness all at the same time. That would be a lot. So um, so the electric chair, um, the harness is different. Uh, the, the handle is considerably longer and, uh, ha- like if anybody has or seen an offset harness, mm-hmm. yeah. um, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's what I have an offset handle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's even more offset than, than your, than stand. that, um, and oh, that's wow. okay. okay. So that's to keep. The, the dog as far away from the wheelchair as possible. So you're not running over feet. Mm-hmm. Power, power wheelchairs weigh like 600 pounds. They're heavy. So, um, so that that's, so, so the, the short answer to your question is, is it possible? Yes, it is. Um, do most of the guide dog schools do it? Unfortunately not. Um, because it is, we're already asking a lot of a dog just to, to be a guide. Um, but then to ask them to guide somebody who's in a wheelchair, it's a whole nother level of complexity. Um, not only does yeah. the dog have to stop at curbs and steps and yada, yada, blah, the, the dog with somebody in a wheelchair has to pick a route that's not going to have a curb or a step, right? They need to pick a space that's going to get them and a wheelchair through, which is considerably wider than them and you know a person who's not in a wheelchair because you know those power chairs they're they're pretty big, yeah. right? So <clears throat> it's it's doable, um, but it's like I said, it's a whole nother level of complexity um, to the process. I know the I think we have two or three graduates. Um, you know, instead of the dog being in training for about four months, um, it takes on average six to eight months to train that dog. Um, and it takes a very special dog too. So, you know, and those dogs don't come, they don't come around very often. So I'm, I'm curious, Rosanna, your friend, does she have vision at all? No, she's totally blind and she is an active adult like the rest of us. Um, and she, you know, she, her dog is eight. So she's, you know, she still has a working guide. And um, she's wondering if the guide that she has can be trained to do this, you know, at this point so that she wouldn't have to, you know, learn to retrain with an, a new dog entirely. And she's quite frustrated. She's been going through this now for six or seven months or so and you know she wants to be able to go back out in the outside world and be able to be independent again totally understandable i would say that 
with a dog who is eight, um, probably not. I don't mm. know if you would agree. Yeah, I, I would agree because at that point, the dog is getting closer to retirement age. Retirement, and, yeah. Yeah, it okay. wouldn't be able to as either mentally or as physically able to accommodate such a change in the work pattern because that would significantly change how the dog is physically managing its situation and, and the pressures that are physically put on the dog's body. So, I, you know, I concur with a lot of the things Chelsea talked about with what we're asking of them. And, and yeah, an eight-year-old dog, that'd probably be tough. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I thought it was a good question. So what I would suggest to her is, is, is like you would tell anybody who has a a question about work, right? Work related, talk to your school. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I think she's pursuing that at this point. Yeah. You know, we can guess and, and all that kind of stuff while we want, you know, we, we just don't know. So. Thanks so much. You guys have been really awesome. And thanks for taking the time out to be here and to answer questions that we've had. Um, it, it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Rosanna, this is this is Gretchen. I just want to briefly comment on um, the and uh, by the way, if something is happening in a current guide dog user's life, Fidelco always works to try to figure out if we can help them and their dog accommodate those changes. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to comment on your comment about working with an OMM instructor. Yeah. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Because we have <laughs> times said to either current guide dog users when we were doing follow-up sessions or people who were um, in the process of application that either because of changes in vision, like sometimes people will have, this is very common, right? Your vision changes over time. and. Yeah. The skills that you use to to deal with mobility issues with less vision are different than the skills that when you're using what remaining vision you have. The less one hundred one percent, yes, yeah. The less vision you have, the different skill set you need. So we are we have commonly suggested to people go talk to your own M instructor, go seek additional, not because you can't do what you already do, but because things have changed and you need an updated skill set. And the same with changes in hearing. You know that's really. Um, then and then add us in, or maybe we work with the OM instructor at the same time. But then, you know, like because we, we can't fix something if it's really that the person needs just a skills update for OM. Okay, Annie, do you have any additional questions? I actually I do. I know, um, you know, I'd like to know if um, just briefly because I think we're close to 11 o'clock or we have some time um, about uh, equipment. Um, have there been any significant equipment changes? Um, and if so, what are they? Um, you know, everything from going from leather to these new wonderful um, uh, new synthetics and things like that. I'd like like some input on that. I know Guiding Eyes, um, you know, and uh, had, you know, designed the Unifly harness for the Running Guides program. I was just wondering if any of the other schools... Um, you know, have done any changes as well. Okay, we'll start with the bottom again. Sue? Uh, as far as I know, no. No changes. We still have the, the full leather harness and same type of leash. So I would say no, we're still nothing new. Gretchen? Thanks, Sue. Okay, yeah, so I would say the... Um, the only change we've made in the past couple of years is we've started to use the, the harness manufactured by Roughwear 
that has it's a it's a synthetic fabric and it has a single uh, post coming off of the harness. I mean, you can lay it down, but and then you can actually the handle is mobile so you can put your hand in any position you want um that's not the i mean we primarily still use the the leather traditional harness but if it seems like the dog or the human would benefit from the rough wear harness for some reason we'll go to that i think some of the downsides Mm. of it are um if somebody's working in a really hot environment it is more of a vest a little bit more vest like where how, where it's on the dog's body. So if somebody was, you know, only in Florida and out and about where it's hot, I, I suspect that that might, you know, they'd want to take care in how, what they're exposing their dog to. But we haven't had any reports that that's been a significant problem. I, you know, I, we also don't have a ton of people out there working in this harness. Those who do are happy with it. So that's our only update. Chelsea? Uh, no, not any significant changes. So still same full leather harness um leash is still the same uh a, a, a variety of handles for sure but um as as far as anything else yeah no we we did some experimentation with the rough wear harness and um i the verdict is still out as to whether we'll make that an option or not um it was it was only instructors were the ones that were using it with dogs in training and some really liked it and some didn't. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, Chelsea, I'll mention we have one instructor who only uses that unless a dog really needs the leather harness. Um, We don't have a lot of handle choices. So I think for us, it solves the problem of people who need to keep their hand in a different position is what usually it ends up being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As Mm. getting, you know, speaking from a, a, a graduate perspective, um, and getting older or, or <laughs> more active, you, know? <laughs> dogs, you know, pull on me for the last 30 years. Um, I was starting to struggle with some carpal tunnel and some elbow issues on my left arm. And, um, we seeing, I has an, an ergo handle. We have a, a harp handle, which if anybody wants to see it is what I have now on my dog. Um, it's, it's even more ergonomic than our ergo handle, um, so, so we, we probably have a few more options when it comes to handles and adapting mm-hmm. for that. Um, that is one nice thing about the rough wear harness though, is it is very adjustable. When yeah. It comes- now, and I- the dog agreed on that one, I guess. I, don't know. <laughs> I have one other question and this is cause something happened to me when I had to wear masks and sometimes we still have to wear masks. Has any have any of you heard of people that wear masks when they're traveling that it, it changes their sense of where they are, or you know, do they think you, you think that the sometimes the person kind of loses their sense of where they are, their direction? Have you ever heard of this before? Oh, Anne, I will tell you, I, I am not directly instructing people these days. I'm, I'm doing uh, the admissions piece and everything. Um, but I have actually heard sighted people mention something a little bit like that. So I guess maybe if I heard that that was happening to someone who was blind or visually impaired, I would not be surprised. Sort of anecdotally, you know what I mean? Mm. Well, this is Annie. I, uh, I, I, it, I, I actually went through something like that at the beginning of COVID when we um, had mask mandates going on. I actually, I 
became almost, and I wouldn't say vertigo, but I would say like, uh, I lost, I felt like I lost uh, the ability to just sense things around me. Um, you know, my directional compass, which is usually pretty good um, because I had vision for so long or whatever. I just felt like that was totally gone. And it took me quite a like a couple of months of working my dog with my mask to really feel confident again. So Nancy, I totally understand how you feel. Um, and I think it's just one of those um, outcomes of being in a masked, masked society. Um, and we need to be aware of that for ourselves and for other people, um, especially, you know, being in public and working your dog and, um, you know, there were times where I felt like I was night blind and it was completely daytime. <laughs> so, no, yeah. I, I just asked that because I had an incident where I actually fell down a partial flight of stairs with the mask on. I just totally. Wow. Wow. And I ended up with um, a fractured tooth that had to be pulled and then a, a bone graft and an implant. And now um, I'm at the point where I have to get a crown on the implant. So yeah, it's it's been it's been wow. over a year since the incident wow. happened. Oh, <laughs> well, it is a phenomenon. I re- and yeah. it's legitimate. Hi, this is Lori. I'm wondering if there's any specific skill that any of the schools teach that you think uh would be beneficial whether it be a specialized skill or just like in the generic vocabulary of the dog for an older population. All right, Sue? Well, I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's, okay, I've been using dogs for 53 years, and I don't notice anything any different, really, with myself. And I haven't heard about anything specifically doing with, you know, with age. Gretchen? Um, I guess I'd be curious to know, you know, what, kind of what the situation or context might be. I mean, as far as the job of a guide dog, it is pretty much the same, whatever age you are, you know, directions, avoidance of obstacles, stopping at curbs, um, checking traffic, things like that. So, uh, you know, from what I can imagine, we wouldn't need to change any of the cues or add some, but then I don't, you know, I guess maybe I'm not sure what context we'd be, we'd be talking, but um, so far, we haven't done that. Chelsea. I really can't think of anything either. Um, I guess, you know, having a dog that's really good about, you know, stairs and curbs um, and, and a dog that would be really good about finding, you know, the railing on a flight of stairs. Um, but beyond that, I, I really can't. No, just commenting on Nancy's thing. It, you, it's called, they used to call it facial vision, where you kind of sense through your face, through your ears, things that are around you. And the first time I put on a mask, it was like, oh, my God, it's like being in the fog. And mm-hmm. um, that what I try to do is because you don't have to wear it outdoors. When I'm walking outdoors, I take it off. And when I get to the door where I'm going, I put it on because 
Yeah, I mean, I was doing diagonal crossings. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? What is going on? And I realized as soon as I didn't have that mask, everything changed. It was, it was normal again. I was almost going to call Guiding Eyes and say, hey, I'm, I'm having problems here. But it's not. It's the mask. Okay, so Marie's question has to do with um, as you get older, uh, your feet, you know, the fact that there's cracks in the sidewalks and some of them are higher. So it's easier for somebody that, you know, as we get older, we forget to pick our feet up so much, maybe that, that could be any age. But, you know, how does this how are the schools dealing with reminding people to, say, pick their feet up? Uh, and does that with somebody older, is that sometimes a challenge? And it probably is for some people. Or, and also training the dog to be more aware of track of cracks, almost a tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Sue. You know, I think that any any dog, once the dog realizes you're having more of a problem with that, I think they adjust. But I remember in 1968, them yelling, pick them up, pick them up. So I think it's a problem of people pick up their feet so they're not tripping. But you're right. When you get older, and your reaction time is slower. But I honestly, I don't know, I couldn't swear to that they train the dogs any differently or make them, but I honestly think once you've had a dog, the dog is going to realize, okay, you, you know, you have a little bit more of a problem here, and the dogs usually adjust. I'm not sure. I, I'm, of course, not a trainer, and I don't know, but I, I don't think there's any special training that would go into, you know, a dog for that type of thing. They deal with people with neuropathy in their feet from very young age, too. Gretchen? Um, yeah, I was going to say similar to neuropathy. I mean, yes, pick up your feet, pick up your feet. I know that's an O&M thing, too. But people walk the way they walk, right? And if you are older or have neuropathy, that might not be something you can do and maintain it over time. So, you know, I agree with you that a lot of times the dogs, you know, they figure out, like, what the person needs. Um, but um, if we know that someone is needs a dog like that, then as we're, uh, you know, as the instructor has the dog and they're preparing for placement for a couple of weeks, they'll make sure to point that out, you know, to try to, to show that, you know, to try to, you know, it's not like you have to retrain it, but you have to, instead of showing me all the two inch toe trips, maybe you want to show me the little toe trips too. Right. So we start to the, the instructor can introduce that to the dog to make it easier to work with on placement. Also, it's really I think everybody's talked about this. It's really all about the matching. The dog who is very worried about making an error and wants to show you all those cracks in the sidewalk is the kind of dog who would be probably more successful with someone who who needs that. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So Kathy Lyons question has to do with vision, uh, peripheral peripheral vision like RP, um, glaucoma, macular degeneration, macular degeneration. Uh, so which, you know, there's, there's still a high partial, but they have these other issues. Are the schools working with, you know, how they, are they changing training or again, is it just simply a matching of, of the dog with the student? Susan. I would think, um, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a trainer and I don't know for sure. I think, again, it's a matching. I think they've always worked with that. They've always, it isn't even necessarily getting older. People have had, you know, lack of peripheral vision 
when they're young too. And I think the dogs, mm-hmm. again, all of the training they're doing is just to get that dog to work as, as smoothly as possible and as safely as possible. And again, mm-hmm. once you have the dog, I think they can adjust to some of the quirks that we have. Gretchen? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the training is the same because when we're training a dog, we don't know who's going to get the dog, you know, as a trainer, um, because that, that takes us six months at least to do that. So, um, it, you know, more uh, we have a lot of people who are visually impaired and not totally blind. And so that's pretty typical at our school. We have a lot of people, um, you know, who might have um, retinal issues. Yeah. So, um and, and some of it is just making sure the person we make, if the person's a first time guide dog user, we help them uh, be able to practice not doing the work for the dog if they can see stuff because that causes its own problems. Chelsea. So we, um, I will say every school is a little bit different when it comes to what's acceptable for them as far as remaining vision and, and how much remaining vision, you know, they're <coughs> willing to work with. Or, or able to work with, I, I guess I should say. Um, we do, seeing eye does work with people with remaining vision. We have tons of grads with RP and, and things like that. Um, there is a such thing as too much vision. Um, and, and what we say is if somebody is a cane user and they're a cane user or should be, there's a lot of those should be's out there, um, to, to be safe then a dog is a possibility. If somebody is a cane traveler, mostly because of identification, you know, they carry a cane mostly so people don't think they're, you know, drunk or something, um, then they probably have too much vision to be successful or to even really benefit from a dog. Um, And then beyond that, like Gretchen said, you know, we train all of our dogs the same because like she said, we don't know who's going to get that dog. And then as far as when somebody does come into class and if they do have remaining vision, um, we have an occlusion program. So we will take a pair of glasses um, and, and they're usually sunglasses and we'll mark off with tape. So, so block off with tape the bottom half of, of their visual field, okay, so that they're not always looking down. Uh-huh. And mm. and yeah. stopping, stopping the dog at the curb, yeah, yep. all that stuff. And and that occlusion, <clears throat> we don't do it all the time. Like you don't do it for every trip. You don't. You may even go two or three days without the occluders, and then you might do two or three trips in a row. We do that so that a person can get a sense of what it feels like, what it should feel like. When they have, when when that vision is gone, what what their dog needs to be and should be doing, so that when they do have that vision, it's the same as it would be when they don't have that vision. Because typically, with with remaining vision, you know that vision fluctuates, you know, depending on light, depending on a whole host of things. So so that's how we address the issue of remaining vision. Well, I know there's probably more questions to be asked, but w- there is a, a a demonstration being done outside in the parking lot of the hotel that people might want to go to. It is a little chillier out this m- now than it was earlier today, 
So you might want to get a light jacket or just grin and bear it. But I would like to take this time to thank our speakers, to thank all of those who attended on Zoom and in person, and for all the questions that were asked. We really, really appreciate it. I've learned some things today that I didn't know before, and that's always a good thing. I hope everybody enjoyed this session, um, and we look forward to doing it something again in a year from now. So once again, thank you, and everybody have a great rest of your day.